Welcome to Rich Conversations. Grace Broderick joins us from Bristol, England, across the pond, but she's originally from Hyde Park, Chicago. Get that. She's developed an interest in bird photography, taking these incredible photos of animals that occupy the natural world all around us, including urban areas. It's crazy how much, how much nature and wildlife is in our urban areas. It's helped her become more present and appreciate the interconnectedness of our ecosystems. She shares her process and what she's learned so far. It's allowed her a space to have conversations about conservation. Grace also shares her uh, knowledge of dinosaurs with me. And uh, I, was, I was like a little kid. I'm like, what do, you th- what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, what, what did you learn here? And, you know, uh, and so our conversation ranges from Jurassic Park to new information from improved technology to how we can learn from past extinctions and how species adapted so we can uh, apply it in the future. A lot of great stuff in this episode. Of, of all guests, I was telling her this, I had the most questions for her. <laughs> so uh, she's a great source of knowledge, and I appreciate that she shared so much with me. You can follow her on Instagram at GKB underscore wildlife. She's got some incredible photos. Take a look at them. It's awesome. Now... Let's begin. All right. Welcome to Rich Conversations. This is going to be another exciting episode. We are joined all the way from Bristol, England by Grace Broderick. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Now, uh, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? Um, Hi, I'm Grace Broderick. I'm adopted from China, but I grew up in Chicago my whole life. Um, I went to Boston College for my undergrad, and now I'm here in Bristol, England, uh, getting my master's in paleobiology. Um, I am an amateur wildlife photographer, and I have sort of strong passions for conservation and sustainability. Yeah, there's there's so much to dive into. Uh, first, tell me what what is Bristol like? Oh, I love Bristol. It's so vibrant and unique. Um, it's really a college town. The whole town is really the University of Bristol. Um, okay. And I, it's it's a small town. I mean, it's it's smaller than any of the cities that I've ever lived in, but it's still pretty big. It's like four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand people. Um, okay. But I love the feel of it because there's no skyscrapers, so it sort of retains a lot of personality to me, and it's very artistic. I'm not the most artistic person, but I definitely love Bristol for being able to see it. Like there's a Banksy that actually is right down, um, right down the road from me. Okay. And all the a lot of the buildings just have these beautiful murals, and um, yeah, it's. It's just a, it's kind of a quirky city, but it's I think vibrant is the best way to describe it. So when you were so so you've lived in the United States and then you went to school in Boston. Mm-hmm. What inspired um, the ambition to study internationally, and then why Bristol in particular over other areas? Um, well, I've always loved uh, travel, just in general. My my family and I have always been very big on traveling and experiencing other cultures, but Bristol specifically, uh, this master's program more specifically is 
an amazing okay. program if you are into anything to do with paleontology. Um, it's very, it's one year, so it's pretty fast. And it just, you learn so much. It's a lot of taught courses, um, plus a thesis, um, and where you can really hone in on exactly what you want to do. Um, okay. But it was helpful for me because I came from a geology background, so I could do all the rocks and the earth sciences, but I didn't really know much about biology. Uh, and so this program was able to sort of facilitate whatever you can come into this program with any background you want and it'll just help you flourish in anything paleo it was recommended to me by many many people really yeah what what originally sparked your interest in uh, paleontology uh i'm the story that i think i go with because i i've loved them since i was six so it's all a little fuzzy but um when I was when you're six, saying I, them, are you referring to dinosaurs? Uh, dinosaurs yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like a lot of kids, honestly. But when I was six, I picked up what I remember to be a hot pink book. And it was about dinosaurs. Don't, and I couldn't tell you what the book was or what was even in it. But it just, I became kind of obsessed from there. Because I went through plenty of phases where I was like, oh, I really like horses. I really like uh, tigers and, well, you know, every animal, you kind of go through a phase. And so this was my dinosaur phase. And then I never, I never grew out of it. Wow. That's cool. And, but you, you came from a background in geology, you said. I did. I did my undergrad in geology because um, I went to okay. Boston College, which is a liberal arts um, institution. So it was um, really helpful to get a lot of great foundation um in i did environmental geoscience that's what my uh major was so what it, what is that like studying geology like what types of things are you learning about i'm just <laughs> off the top of my head just imagining rocks yeah that's that's a lot it that was basically most of it it's a lot a lot of rocks um and i think i wanted to do that because i've had a lot of field experience in my life um because I've been lucky enough to work with Dr. Serino at the University of Chicago for a long time. And so mm. he was helping me a lot with, I did fossil prep and field work and that kind of stuff with him. And then when I got to Boston College, they have a really great geology or environmental science department. So that was okay. a great place for me. Plus my interest in sustainability really flourished there as well. But of course, I've always wanted it okay. to be directed back to dinosaurs. And no matter if you come from biology or earth science background, they both are really important in paleontology. So you can kind of start wherever you want. Now, what, what's the difference between, um, you said, you said environmental science and. Yeah. Uh, um, Boston college had environment an environmental science department. And then I got my specific major in environmental geoscience, which was just geology plus sort of earth history, plate tectonics, that kind of stuff, plus uh, climate change and past climate history and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to get into paleontology, but maybe uh, a little bit later right now I'm like, cause this is how I first uh, came across you and, and uh, approached you to be a guest on the show, but mm -hmm. you're, your photos on your Instagram <laughs> of your wildlife photography are really cool. And they're oh, all of birds. You. Like, tell me, tell me more about how you got into wildlife photography. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I'm definitely still learning, but um, 
I've always been into just wildlife in general, sort of like any kid. Uh, if you ever watched Planet Earth at all, then you kind of just went from there. Um, but it probably, in 2014, I had the amazing opportunity to go to Antarctica for a science trip. And you can't go there and not see all the incredible, unique animals and then walk away not being inspired. Um, so that definitely inspired more of an interest in wildlife and conservation than I had before. So this was back when I was a, a junior in high school. And so throughout junior, throughout my high school career and then in college, I didn't do a ton with wildlife photography. I had a really lovely camera, but I didn't know what to do with it because um, I, was, I was too focused on sort of my studies and other stuff and paleo. So I had no idea what I was doing. But then senior year of college, I took an ornithology course. And I, I did it almost not as a joke, but I did it because I was like, oh, I like birds. This guy, this professor is trying out. This is the first time he's teaching an ornithology course. I, me and some friends did it. We kind of were like, what if we made little vlogs about going on these little bird walks? Wouldn't that be so funny? We kind of did it because it was definitely going to be interesting, but we had no idea what we were getting into. And yeah. I had no idea how in love with birds and bird watching I would um, get from this class. So when I took this class, I just became obsessed with the bird watching that because we could go on tours and stuff. And starting the course, I couldn't tell the difference between like literally a robin and a chickadee. I just I, I didn't know anything. Um, yeah, I think most uh, viewers and listeners are in the same <laughs> position. Well, exactly. <laughs> I, I felt I was like. Because we were walking with people who were telling us, oh, yeah, there's a yellow-throated warbler and there's a this and that. And I was like, oh, I have no idea how they can identify these. And now I can to some degree. I'm still not perfect. But um, that class is definitely what inspired a bird focus on my wildlife. Okay. And then COVID hit. And kind of one of the best activities I could do was going out alone into nature and watching birds and um, taking my camera with me. And the more I did that, the more I would look up how to do it even better. And um, so I, you know, I improved lenses and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, the the better I got at photography, the more in love I fell, fell in. Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about like wildlife photography until there was, there was this exhibit at the Field Museum. And uh, mm -hmm. as a member of the Field Museum, I always like to check out exhibits and I'm there quite frequently. So I, I probably, of all the exhibits I've seen, I probably have visited this one the most of all the like temporary ones. And I probably went like maybe like six or seven times because I was just so fascinated by like wow. the these photos of wildlife and how, how these, uh, a lot of, I think they were all for the most part, amateur photographers. Oh, I and love that. And the, these these images were so spectacular and uh i can't remember if it was like a uh a contest or something there's like a world global wide mm -hmm. uh contest and you see these photos of, of wildlife whether it's like taken from a creek in tennessee or yeah. like siberia or australia or spain or you know alaska it, it was just like so mesmerizing. And mm -hmm. could you describe a little bit more about the, the potential and the, uh, 
the impact that wildlife photography can have on uh, the the general public? Oh, I mean, sure. That's kind of that's why I really kickstarted my Instagram because I liked taking pictures of birds and it was a lot of fun um, and they're pretty and that kind of thing. But what my Instagram is really geared toward conservation conversation. So every okay. post that I make, uh, I try to write something about what the subject is and something about conservation, whether it's a scientific study that came out recently, like, oh, did you know blue tits are actually adapting very well to urban areas? And this is great. Mm -hmm. If you keep up your feeders, then you'll help blue uh, the blue tit population, that kind of thing. Um, okay. So wildlife, and I think wildlife photography can be so powerful because it allows people to see, even if they're really common things, like a lot of the things I um, photograph are, are urban birds that everybody really sees every day. But I don't know if people really see them every day. The average person, like myself before I got into this, didn't really care about the birds I'd see around until I started yeah. seeing these beautiful photos of them and realizing there's so much more beauty to that thing that just sort of darts in front of you that you totally miss. Yeah, especially in the city too. Like um, when people imagine wildlife photography, they're probably not imagining urban spaces and cities and the wildlife that exists within this own environment. And even myself, like uh, in the city, it's like you, you're very selective in what you hear. Like I had a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, my parents visited one time and we were walking along the lakefront path right by like Lakeshore Drive. And mm -hmm. my mom's like, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't really hear you guys right now. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, all the, all the traffic, all the traffic going by. I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I, I don't even hear that. <laughs> no, like, really uh, though. It, and then like birds too. Like if I, I'm on uh, right now, I'm recording this in a high rise on the ninth mm -hmm. floor. And sometimes I can hear the sounds I hear are really interesting. Mm -hmm. And if you really cue into the, the birds, you can hear them. And they're, it's like, you kind of wonder why they're doing certain things or saying certain oh, it's, things. It's so true. I think that's a big allure for me when I was getting into birds specifically, I wanted to know what these behaviors were. I wanted to be able to differentiate the songs. I'm not great at that myself, but I'm, yeah, I, I got a lot better over quarantine learning all the bird sounds and it's just, it's so much fun. And it's true. I, one thing that limited my wildlife photography for a long time before I really got into birds was I really only posted photos when I went somewhere very unique. I, like I only posted mm. photos when I took a trip to Yellowstone or from my trip from Antarctica yeah. or when I went, um, I went to Norway with my family and I, I, cause I felt like, Oh, those are the only pictures people really want to see are these like crazy unique things. And that's just not true. Cause there's so much beauty in the urban, in all urban environments as well. Yeah. And it's also like you're showcasing what's here at home. Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world right like who are you trying to show the photos to is it people in chicago and your friends or is it like oh we're connected globally mm -hmm. via these devices i can show the world what it's like here in chicago and the wildlife here yeah like that's that, actually right? what's been really fun for me moving continents um because now i post photos mostly now that i'm here i post photos that i take here in england um, so they're all common birds here, but 
the robins here are completely different from the robins in America because they're a totally different species. They're not even in the same family, but they're both called robins. Um, but they look completely different. Arguably, the European robins are a lot cuter. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's been fun because I've had people from America commenting about the robins that I post being like, oh my God, those robins are so cute. How cool. And then if I post a robin photo from a, a, an American robin photo, I have some people from England commenting like, wow, your robins look so different. They're so big. They're so <laughs> differently shaped. They're not round. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, okay. So then when you, so you're taking these photos, what is your process like when you like first go out and you decide, okay, I'm today for however many hours I'm going to go shoot, shoot birds, mm -hmm. uh, figuratively. Like, what is that process like? Well, for me, because I'm, uh, not a professional at all. I, it's more of a, I try to go every morning. So I live very close to a park. So I take my camera with me when I walk my dog in the morning. Um, that's another great thing about England is that dogs, she's trained to be fully off leash. So I can just let her do her thing. And then I'm doing my thing with the um, camera, oh, wow. but, um, which is so nice. Cause I never would have done that um, in the States. Cause it's, you can't hold a leash and a camera and all sorts of stuff like yeah. that. But um, so here, my routine has just been, I go out every morning with dog anyways. So I get what I can get, but sometimes I do make special trips for myself um, to places that are known for other birds. And in that case, it's really just a matter of, me setting very early alarms and getting my gear together. And uh, I've, I've just really been enjoying exploring all these places. And a lot of them are still pretty common areas. And I see a lot of common birds. But for me, they still end up being very unique because I haven't seen them. Um, but of all the people here have seen them before and they're common garden birds, but I haven't. So I'm still enjoying it immensely. Wow. So so here I'm picturing like you're sitting out in like, like, a, like, a, like a tree stand or you're like, you're like digging through earth and to get the, you know, lying down, to try to get this, but you're just going on like morning walks and you're. Oh yeah. I, my birding style is my bird watching bird photography style is very casual. It is just walking along to see what I see. There are a lot of places where I, I, I love just being able to sit somewhere and even if i don't see a bird in that moment just sit there for a little while and wait and maybe a bird will come around um the bird the park that i go to um with my dog has a lot of birds has a lot of little songbirds around there so sometimes i'll find a place to sit and um take bird feed and i've had one instance with like bird feed in my hand and they'll come eat it out of my hand which is just the most magical experience i've ever wow. had wow so what do you think? Okay. So you're out there, you're, uh, you have a, a lot of experience interacting kind of with this, uh, ecosystem in a way. What, what do you think is happening between the birds? Like, what are these, like, uh, for example, like, uh, when I go back to Wisconsin, I'm from Wisconsin, I'll sit in the backyard and I'll just sit there. And in one, this is like, uh, one part of the yard this is a big yard uh because we're out in the country there's trees over here a patch of trees and mm -hmm. you can there's noises from the birds coming and then over here like all the way across there's like a woods and there's they're making noises too and it's almost like they're 
they're talking to each other. What do you think is going on between like birds? And- <laughs> well, it definitely feels like that sometimes. And in some cases uh, they are like, I, I remember sitting, uh, my dad has a house in Ohio and he has um, a backyard with feeders. And I remember one day I went out there and there were a lot of, he, he gets a lot of birds going through there, blue jays, cardinals, chickadees, okay. all the good stuff. And one day I went out there and it was, it got really loud with all the birds making various sounds. And then they all just sort of disappeared. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm sitting out here and they don't want me around. And oh, well. And um, so I just sat there for a little while. And then I noticed that, that there was a Cooper's hawk sort of flitting from branch to branch in the back. And that what I found from that is clearly all the songbirds were alerting each other. Hey, there's something here. And then they all scattered. Um, and I'm sitting there like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But um, yeah, they definitely talk to each other. They definitely talk to uh, within species. They're talking to each other. We're in springtime now. So there's a lot of calling for their um, love. But yeah. um, so right now is probably one of the louder times, which is exciting. And soon, hopefully we'll be able to hear some of the babies start screaming um, for our food constantly. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have a favorite bird? Do I have a favorite bird back in the States? Hmm. I think I really love the chickadee because it was one of the first birds that I learned how to identify the sound because they, um, they make two very distinct sounds um, as the, my ornithology professor sort of put it, it would okay. be, well, one of them it's named after the sound because it makes a like chickadee dee 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 sound. That's the chickadee. And then it makes another sound, which is like a, Hey, sweetie. That's what they call it. Um, and you could just start it. Yeah. I feel like I can just like, um, I know that sound. Yeah. You can hear that little, like, it's like a whistle. I'm I'm not great at whistling, but it's like just a, Hey, sweetie. So that's the, um, those are the two sounds of chickadees. Um, probably my favorite bird there. Oh, my favorite bird in the UK is one that I have yet to see. And it's one that I really want to, it's called, um, a bearded tit and, if, if you look them up or if some, you know, if anybody listening looks them up, they are crazy looking. They, they're very rotund. If you get them at the right angle, they're very rotund and they've got what looks like amazing eye makeup, almost like eyeliner that just is gorgeous. And they look, they look a little goofy, a little clownish, but I really want to see one and try to get a perfect round picture from the front. Okay. I, uh, Let's see is this this set right here oh yeah yeah <laughs> there it is they uh yeah they look kind of like clowns almost but i just they're so dramatic looking i'd love to see one i think they're a little further north from where i am so what do you think um evolutionary wise what what are those black marks that go down what is that for you think <sighs> gosh uh could be a lot of things. I know some people, it could be functional the way that football players will put, you know, black under their eyes. Most yeah. likely it's, it's probably more to do with mating and looking the most attractive yeah. to, um, to another, to another bird. So probably something more like that. Um, but really, I mean, so many of these things have, have sort of multifunctions. Um, like cardinals, red redness, um, they're 
you can tell sort of how healthy a cardinal is, whether how sort of how red, how vibrantly red it is. And the females can see that too. So they're like, oh, okay, this guy's, this guy's healthy. Is there a, uh, is there a bird you don't like? No, I think, I think I, that I, there are no birds I don't like because every time I, when I used to think that there was a bird I didn't like, I've, I learned something incredible about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love it. Like, like vultures. People are like, oh, oh yeah, those are ugly. They're ugly. They're, they're, you know, kind of creepy. They're omens of death, that whole thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like to see them that much either. But they're so incredible. And evolutionarily, that head, the reason it's so ugly is so that it can't have feathers on it because it's sticking its head into dead animals. And if it had feathers, then, all the gunk within the dead animal would be getting yeah. on it and it couldn't keep itself clean. So that's a complete, that's um, to keep it actually very clean. And they're really helpful for the environment because they break down the toxins that comes with rotting meat. So okay. rotting, rotting meat can be really toxic for the environment and for, and not for a lot of reasons. So when they digest yeah. it, as it goes through their digestive system, it breaks down all those things that are toxic. And so they're, they're a really important cleanup system. Interesting. How, how important are birds to our ecosystems and environment? Oh, the most, I mean, you know, I, I, I do prefer them aesthetically to like to mammals and although I do love reptiles and amphibians, but no, they, they are incredibly important. And a lot of them act as sort of biomarkers where if, you can tell an environment's doing really well because there's a lot of this kind of bird in this environment, such as like um, herons. Uh, you can tell that this wetland is doing really well and it's not toxic or something along those lines because, oh, there's herons here and all the herons are healthy and they're coming back for more as opposed to somewhere where it's like, wow, the herons there look really unhealthy or there's no herons there. We should check the water quality because there's clearly an issue. Huh. something like that but and that's just one of obviously many reasons they're apex predators they're prey sources they're pollinators they're everything wow can you tell me about the birds in chicago and mm -hmm. kind of what what the what the bird scene is like there it's so much bigger than i ever imagined i because i had no idea until um quarantine started because I had, I was in, I was in college during quarantine. Uh, so okay. I got sent home to Chicago. And so I continued my birding there. And that's when I got involved with the Chicago Audubon Society. So I actually, I still volunteer for them. And I um, have done some, I am actually, which makes sense. I, I help out with their Instagram and uh, TikTok accounts. So. Um, oh, okay. I and, saw one of your, one of your recent posts is from there or you, <laughs> you were uh yeah, well, I, I help out a bit with their social medias, but it was because that's sort of the only thing I'm really that I'm really okay at. <laughs> but um, I, they do they they facilitate walks, and there is a massive birding community in Chicago that I never knew. For like, so I live in Hyde Park, uh, which is where the University of Chicago is, mm -hmm. and I never even really thought about it. There's a um, there's a uh, an island. You know, do you know the Wooded Island, uh, Jackson? Park, I've never Island. been there, but I, I hear about it. Right behind the science yeah. and industry, there's this 
kind of small island with trees and it's got the Japanese garden. It's a beautiful place to just take a walk. But then if you take a slower walk, I've gone there and seen 30 to 40 different types of species in one day, because especially during spring. It's an incredible oasis. And there's tons of those in Chicago. You just wouldn't even notice. Um, There's a place called up at Montrose, Montrose Beach, uh, Montrose Park. Yeah, that's, that's close to me. Yeah. Yeah, they've got that bird sanctuary there, unreal, absolutely incredible. And of course, the beach has the um, has all the shorebirds that everybody loves and the plovers. And um, so it's a much uh, Chicago has so much more biodiversity than I even realized because I was I, I was like, oh, sure, like everywhere has people who like birds. But does everywhere have the biodiversity that we do? And the answer is no. And I was like, I was, I was trying to figure out why does this city, this concrete city with little bits of grass here and there, why does it have so much biodiversity? And it's because the bits of grass that I'm referring to are really incredible. And it's a really important stop off point before traveling to and from Canada. So all these migratory species that go to Canada, they stop in Chicago either before or after, because they got to refuel before the really big trip across the Great Lakes. So Chicago is just like a huge international hub, basically, where birds <laughs> from Mexico are going to Canada. It's it's sort of it's O'Hare, basically. Wow. Tell me more about this uh, sanctuary in particular, because I know which one you're referring to. Mm-hmm. I when I go on like lawn walks, uh, it's it's right there in that spot. What what. Uh, um, is it just like a natural space or, or things done to help birds or tell me more? Um, about well, that. it is a protected sanctuary, so they don't want like bikes and dogs and that kind of stuff going through. Um, you can still find birds in other areas, but this one is just a little more protected. I know they've been having some construction going on there because they want to make it. Um, they're making it more accessible, which will be really lovely. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know too much about the inner workings of it other than that it it is a bit off a bit off like the beaten path of just Montrose Park because Montrose is a wonderful area you know with a big soccer field and lots of beach space but this is a pretty distinct heavily wooded area it's got both heavily it's got areas of woods and it's got some grasslands um so it can really attract all all manner of birds there huh wow is there anywhere in the world that would be a dream to travel to and take photos of the birds? Well, I kind of fulfilled um, one of my big, I, I, there's so many. Um, last summer, I had the opportunity to go to the Galapagos, which was definitely a major place that I wanted to go for birds, just especially because so many of them are endemic to that area. You'll just won't find them anywhere else. Um after going there, I've always wanted to try to figure out how to do some trip to like the Amazon to see all those crazy birds of paradise and uh, yeah. those kind of things. But I did realize um, and I, I've been to Australia before when I was much younger and I, I kick myself now because I wasn't into birds or photography at all. And Australia okay. has some unbelievable birds that I completely missed out on because I didn't care. But so I'd love to go wow. back and, and see those. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. 
That is really cool. About in Asia. Oh, they're like I, really unique birds in Asia that you definitely. like to shoot. Absolutely. Definitely. They're beautiful birds too. Um, India has a massive birding culture. Like there are tons of people who just love birds and bird watching and bird photography. I think half of my followers and the people that I follow on Instagram are Indian because they just, they, they, they're so good. The birds are amazing and they're so interested. Um, so I'd love to go there. And I think I'll have no shortage of guides because there's the, everybody, <laughs> there's so many bird, bird people. <laughs> Well, before we move on to dinosaurs, what, what is, uh, um, what would you say you've learned about yourself by immersing yourself within this, uh, this newfound passion and immersing yourself in, uh, nature? Well, cause I always thought of myself as kind of like nature and that kind of thing, but this has shown me to really open my eyes like anywhere I go because you you miss so many of these little birds whether you're in an urban environment or even in a forest or anything if you're not kind of if you're not open to it if your head's down looking at your phone or that kind of thing you you Mm. just miss a lot of the natural beauty that's around and I really love I I hope that through what I photograph I'm capturing some of that natural beauty and the reason that I put conservation quotes or or factoids or whatever with um with my photos is because I want people to be sort of similarly inspired like I am where I see something so beautiful I learn that it's either doing really well thanks to us or it's not doing very well thanks to us mm-hmm. and it it is it is inspired a lot of change in me whether it's like personal habits or um looking into ways that I can uh, aid in any type of conservation, working with Audubon, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, it's just made me so much more aware of the natural beauty everywhere. And I think it's one of the reasons I love Bristol so much because it, it's such a, you know, like I said earlier, there's, it's the lack of skyscrapers is really nice and refreshing. Um, huh. and just feels more natural in a lot of ways. Wow. That is cool. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, paleontology. Now, can you describe what uh, paleobiology is and how it's different from paleontology or is it is it within yeah, it? Or- you know, I'm still struggling with that, honestly, even though it's something I've been interested <laughs> in for so long and I'm getting my major, uh, my master's in it. Um, I should I should really learn the distinction, but um, paleobiology <laughs> I feel like has I think paleontology encompasses more. It enco- it's sort of just the study of all life and things related to anything in the past, um, and paleobiology refers specifically to the biological aspects of it from from big, big, large level things like macroevolution, like huge changes from, um, from fins to limbs and that kind of stuff to really small things like, oh, how did this one little species survive? Or how did this one, uh, how how fast could a T-Rex run? Those kind of things. It's all encompassed in paleobiology for sure, because it has anything to do with, with life specifically. And, um, yeah, I think I think that that's the best way that I can describe it. But <laughs> wow, 
what advanced, what like technological advances are you excited about for paleontology? Ooh, I feel like we've already made so many that I was, that I could never have even dreamed of um, growing up. Because growing up, you, I read all the, all the books of these big scaly dinosaurs being all scary and, or lumbering and whatnot. And that, I think that's one big allure of birds is because with ancient birds, it's something that we've uh, really come a long way in terms of technology, like just being able to discover feathers on birds. And so that helps us to completely relook at what they even look like. They don't, they, they, the fact that things even like T-Rex may have had feathers. And so some people argue it's not as terrifying, but I still don't want like a 30 foot vulture after me. That's not really fun to see, but um, yeah. So uh, for me in the, in, in a lot of paleo, I think one of the biggest advancements and it's something that I've been working with is uh, CT scanning um, because okay. we, it's, it's such a useful thing for paleo because a lot of times we want to look at we want to really look in depth at the bones and the bone structure, but we don't really want to start sawing into the bones. We want, we don't want to be destroying these things to see it. So that's what CT scanning has been an absolute lifesaver. And that's what I've been working on um, for a couple of projects uh, has, you can reconstruct entire skeletons that have just been CT scanned. Like I did um, my undergrad, I did a thesis in conjunction with Harvard and we were looking at a, um, it wasn't a dinosaur, but it was a Jurassic, uh, it was still Jurassic aged and it's a type of, uh, reptile okay. and we had CT scanned. It, it was in a, a, a tiny, tiny block of sand or rock. And instead of sort of breaking it open and looking at each bone individually, which would be nearly impossible because some of these bones were just the, the width of like a needle, you put it in a CT scanner and you can just move all the bones, um, on your computer you can just reconstruct it right there instead of uh sort of the old-fashioned way i guess wow what then do you think technology will allow paleontologists and people studying uh fossils in the future what mm -hmm. do you what technology do you think would be the most helpful mm -hmm. gosh i don't even know because I am not the most tech savvy person. Um, so I'm probably the very wrong person to ask on this. I remember growing up, I used to think how useful it would be to have something like a metal detector, but it detects bones instead of metal. Um, oh. But that I think is most likely not feasible. Um, and we have people and we, we can kind of do that on our own if we know where to look. But um, I don't really know what exact... Techno like what what more we're missing because there's so many answers so many questions in paleontology that can be that are still able to be answered which is one thing that's really yeah. exciting um just knowing that there is so much mystery out there but gosh i don't know what the technological solutions are to them huh. what what uh what are you most curious about in paleontology right now? Ooh. Well, I'm doing my project on something that I never really thought of. And now it is really interesting to me. Um, I'm currently doing my master's project 
on um, looking at it's an it's a prehistoric bird bird skull. But what I'm doing is I'm taking the negative space inside the skull, which is where the brain would be. So mm-hmm. if I take that negative space, I can basically reconstruct what the brain shape looked like. And so I can see, oh, the olfactory ball, it's an example. I'm not sure yet what the result is, but as an example, maybe it has a really big um, olfactory bulb. And so that means, oh, it's senses of smell and taste were really good. And then it's got a really tiny um, visual portion. So it had really bad eyesight that could tell us something about how it lived. Um, so paleo neuroanatomy, looking at the brains is definitely something I never thought about with, with regards to paleontology. Cause I think it felt so, so out of reach because brains just can't brain matter just doesn't fossilize. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just something that felt so out of reach. But now, now that I'm working on something like that. I'm like, wow, maybe we can do this with so many animals, so many prehistoric animals. It can, we can really reconstruct what they, what types of behaviors they had based on their brains. Wow. Yeah. Dinosaurs are so fascinating. They are. uh, Real quickly for listeners and viewers, Mm -hmm. describe the, the difference between reptiles and dinosaurs and why dinosaurs are different. Well, uh, dinosaurs are technically, they are reptiles in, in a sense. They're, they're reptiles, but, they're, but so are snakes and so are uh, lizards. And so it's more like dinosaurs are cousins, basically, to snakes and lizards and those things. It's not, and when it comes to birds, it's not necessarily that dinosaurs are the grandparents of birds. They, they... Birds are dinosaurs. It's hard family tree wise to kind of differentiate this. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a messy uh, family tree. <laughs> it is a very messy family tree, um, and it's a highly, still highly debated. People are—that's phylogenetics. The sort of study of these massive family trees are still very ongoing. Um, but dinosaurs are reptiles, and. They have a lot of unique functions that a lot of reptiles don't sort of very, very basically, uh, if you look at a dinosaur, they hold their legs more similar to like a human where they're right underneath us. And then if you look at a lizard, you can see their legs sort of splay out to the side a bit more. That's just one of many um, reasons that that they're uh, that they're different. And that's one reason. That's one of the many characteristics that people used when they were trying to argue that birds did come from dinosaurs. Um, and so, yes, birds came from a lineage of dinosaurs. Obviously a bird didn't, uh, come from a a triceratops or a brachiosaurus. They didn't come from those, but they came from another offshoot, like, um, the the offshoot that looked more like raptors, wasn't raptors necessarily, but, um, ones that looked more like that. So, yeah, I think that's the, the, that's the best way that I can describe the difference or, and the fact that yes, dinosaurs are reptiles. Yeah. What do you, what do you, how do you think and feel about the Jurassic park series, especially <laughs> recently uh, with like hybrids and stuff and just the, how dinosaurs are portrayed <laughs> in films and size wise and characteristics. How do you feel about that? I don't know if this is a hot take. I adore Jurassic Park. Just the first one. As a paleontologist, 
I adore that movie. I, I think it's, I'm not going to sit here and say it's the most accurate thing in the world, but I'm also not going to say that it matters all that much. Um, <laughs> and I think for, especially for the time and what they were working with, I think it was pretty, pretty beautifully done. And just in terms of as, as far as action movies go, it's to me, one of the most <laughs> just perfect action movies. They do a really yeah. good job. Uh, uh, the the rest of them are including the Jurassic World series that's coming out now. They're fun to watch. I definitely I love the CGI of the Jurassic of Jurassic World. Jurassic World 2. I wasn't such a big fan. But um I loved watching the CGI. The hybrid stuff, I I almost feel like it's so far from paleontology anymore that I don't even watch it as a dinosaur, as an interested dinosaur. I watch it more like watching an alien movie where I'm like I don't study aliens, uh, so I don't know. That, that's just how I watch them because I'm so, it, it, they become, especially with the hybrids, to your point, they're so detached from dinosaurs um, yeah. and facts that I, I really don't watch it like, oh, wow, that Triceratops frill is not nearly tall enough or, or whatever. Um, it's just like, oh, it's kind of like an alien. <laughs> it's not, but. What do you, what do you think? Um... The biggest impact from the Jurassic Park movies has been on society. Well, I I would imagine that, and I would think that it would get kids at least interested in dinosaurs, um, including yourself. You know, right? it didn't get. I was already interested when I watched the first okay. one. Um, I, I was I was too young to watch it when it first came out in theaters or anything. But when my when my family when I watched it for the first time. I was the only reason I probably watched it so young is because I was interested in dinosaurs. Like my family knew that. So I watched it when I was pretty young, but it, you know, it didn't spark my personal interest, but I'm sure that it sparked many people's just to imagine living among these living among them. For me, um, the sort of one of the most amazing dinosaur, uh, movies documentaries is did you ever watch or hear of the walking with dinosaurs franchise it's like uh the disney one right uh no it's um it's bbc and it's uh well it was originally it was narrated by kind of brano but it was basically it, it it was done in the way that a nature documentary would be like a planet earth except it was dinosaurs only okay. so it was it was height of technology mate when it was made and Gosh, I don't remember. It's on one of the streaming streaming services. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Um, And they're actually currently in the process of making prehistoric planet, which is really exciting because it's going to be narrated by David Attenborough. Yeah, I love all those things. I'm looking right now. This is. uh, I happen to have this right next to me. I used to in college. I would just like I'd watch these all the time on the history. Yeah, they're based. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the The prehistoric collection. collection. uh, We got. I keep this on my bookshelf. Uh, (laughs) So we got which one is which? They're all the same. There's like the the Fight Club one where like (laughs) raptors take on uh, T Rex. Mm-hmm. Wait, no. See, yeah, we that's got... basically what Walking with Dinosaurs was, but it was just the British version. Yeah, this one, this one's like, um, yeah. Oh, oh man, I gotta rewatch these. 
There's yeah. like biggest killers, Raptors Last Stand, Ice Age Monsters, River of Death, Raptor vs. T-Rex, Armageddon. Armageddon. Uh, Cannibal Dinosaur, T-Rex Hunter, Game Killers, Bloodiest Battle, Deep Sea Killers, Hunters Ooh. Become Hunted. It's like, <laughs> That's <laughs> like, so fun. No, there's, yeah. it's, I think film documentaries became a huge part of my interest. Um, and I actually minored in film studies at, when I was in Boston College because I am so interested in mostly documentaries and film editing. Um, okay. Definitely inspired, fully inspired by David Attenborough, Planet Earth, and any dinosaur documentary that I ever watched. Some of them, like I'll, I watch them on YouTube. I'll go on mm-hmm. YouTube and I'll like watch the paleontology videos. Mm-hmm. And some, some of the CGI, it's, it, it is hard to watch. Yeah. But overall, there's some really fantastic ones. Oh, it's, it's so true. It's, um, it really is amazing. I, I can't imagine how people, how people do it, but yeah. yeah. And uh, that's why I'm excited for this new one coming out, which will be really cool. Do you know when it's coming out? Oh, I just saw. Um, we just it was circulating in my my master's program, of course, because we're all we're all about dinosaurs here. Um, it's on. Oh, it's on Apple TV. That's where it's coming out. And then mm-hmm. when is it coming out, though, is the question. Um, May 23rd. Uh, it's coming up. Mm-hmm. Wow! Sounds almost oh, like I'm doing cool. a press conference for them, but um, yeah. I, I am really excited. Wow, that's awesome! Do you have a favorite dinosaur? Um, probably. Um, I worked on a little dinosaur, a very ancient bird, uh, called Confuciusornis, and. I think that has become my favorite dinosaur because it's so unique. And um, I think the one of the most unique things about it is that it has these two really, what's been preserved are these two really long feathers that are kind of coming out of the, um, coming out of the tail of one of them, or not one of them, but... And some people are like, what are those two feathers? And why are we only finding them in some, but not all? And it's still hotly debated, but most likely it's one of the only examples of sexual dimorphism where the males have a clear distinction from the females because you just don't see that in paleontology very often. But this species is one of the only ones that has shown very likely sexual dimorphism. And then they, uh, a couple of, or one study did an analysis of a number of bones. And what they did was they checked for um, a type of, um, a type of bone that's only found in female birds. And somehow, and somehow they, they can, they can see it even in fossils. And what they discovered is that the birds that had these long feathers did not have any of that female only uh, matrix but the birds without um without the feathers some of them did now it's not that doesn't mean it's definitive they could be juveniles they could be this or that hmm. but in other words the males uh the the ones with the long tails were definitively not female 
that's that's all that so um it's very likely that they are a result of sexual dimorphism still debated uh, which is part of the fun but it would be really cool if that if that is the case and it's such a unique case huh that is really interesting huh do you think there's uh within our lifetimes that we will discover something so profound that it will completely shift our perspective on what dinosaurs were or like what existed or like the way we like or something. Yeah. And like uh, the jump in paleontology from like the late 19th century to today is just astronomical. Mm -hmm. Have we discovered Absolutely. and like, uh, like, do we pretty much know what we are going to know or like a hundred years, like within our lifetimes, are we going to discover something even more profound? I think that's, that's so much the fun of paleontology. Um, and I guess it just depends, you know, one thing that is still sort of yet to be discovered is exactly the coloration of dinosaurs that did not have feathers because feathers, we've been able to find exact pigments because um, we can look at the microscope, like the, the, what the feathers look like under a microscope and see certain um, components that say this feather was red, like it, it, which is amazing. Didn't think that would ever be possible. But for example, yeah, dinosaur skin coloration is still a, a something that's pretty under undiscovered and even uh even more recently there was a paper that came out that's got it's got like some of the paleontology community is like oh this is a big deal where they're splitting tyrannosaurus into three different um three different species so instead of just being tyrannosaurus rex there there's now a tyrannosaurus rex Gosh, I can't remember. I'm going to butcher the other ones. Tyrannosaurus Rex, Tyrannosaurus Regina, and Tyrannosaurus Imp Imperior, Emperor, something like that. But basically, wow. there's three There's three species of Tyrannosaurus and not just one. Um, so that's one way, one place in which, and this is one study now. So, of course, all the a lot of people who study Tyrannosaurus now are going to jump on whether to rebuke that or not. Um, but... There's always, I think one thing that's very interesting about paleontology is even if it's not headline news, there's always major discoveries and major backlash to major discoveries. Um, so that's, you know, and it's also likely in our future, we are going to find hopefully more, more specimens and maybe we'll find something, you know, well, maybe we'll find the next biggest dinosaur ever or that, or uh, something incredible like that but yeah i think that's the fun of paleontology we have no idea what we're gonna yeah. find is there a place in the world where we haven't really looked yet um not that i really know of it, it's all dependent on the geology of the place so of course there are some places that you just know because of the rock formation sorry um you just know because of the rock formation this place will not have dinosaurs these rocks are from the cambrian um so this you know 300 million years before a single dinosaur ever existed so th there are places that we shouldn't even bother but yeah. um i have a feeling we've explored most places that could potentially hold them the only thing that would hold that back really is 
things like cities that we've built cities on top of them. <laughs> um, okay. Because I know yeah. there have been yeah. expeditions even to Antarctica um, for fossils and things like that. So yeah, we've definitely Antarctica been to. Is, uh, yeah. Got we've some definitely stuff been there. to all the corners, at least, of the Earth, but then there's places mm. that may have it, but we can't access it. Wow. Well, uh, kind of wrapping up our uh, mm -hmm. chat on dinosaurs, how would you summarize how dinosaurs? help humans gain perspective about the world and scientific exploration? Ooh, well, everyone has uh, different approaches, but one approach that I'm really excited to look at in the future is sort of a new and up and coming um, uh, field of study. It, people are studying it now. It's um, conservation paleobiology, using the past, using species of the past to help us understand uh, evolutionary, evolutionary trends, um, extinction rates, extinction trends. And since we are currently in the midst of a biodiversity crisis ourselves, it might be really important to look at how past species dealt with climate change to understand how we can best serve the ones that are dealing it with it today. So that's sort of a more like heavy specific, um, way that paleontology can really help us in our future. But I think it definitely shouldn't be overlooked that paleontology, dinosaurs in general, can be a really wonderful source of inspiration to kids mm -hmm. to, it, to pursue STEM, especially women, yeah. young girls. It's been because I remember growing up, dinosaurs were very, um, was a very male dominated uh, interest like I, I remember my mom trying to get me birthday cakes and stuff and they'd they'd always have they'd always be like four boys and she's like no 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 this is for my daughter and they're like are you sure um yeah and of course that's definitely changing more but definitely dinosaurs are so great as sources of inspiration for kids to get into stem at all mm -hmm. um so they they serve that function to humans specifically and they serve huge functions for conservation and biodiversity in general. Wow. After your studies, what are you excited to uh, pursue? Um, well, when I finish here, I will be applying for PhDs in the coming, in the coming years, which is exciting. Okay. But the probably most uh, exciting thing that I'm doing after I finish is I've been invited to do a, um, to be a field assistant on an expedition to Africa um, with the University of Chicago. So okay. that's going to be very exciting. And I've never been to Africa. That'll be my seventh continent, which is also just exciting for it. I was own, about to say, like, uh, what, own right. what, which one are we missing here? Uh, yeah. Where, where have, in Africa? It's in Niger. So um, sort of oh, okay. middle of the Sahara. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited. And it'll be a one month. Well, the whole expedition is uh, longer, but I'll be going for about one month. and. Um, incredibly excited because I've done a lot of field work and fossil digs and things, but I've never um, done anything that extreme. Wow. That is exciting. Yeah. That's really exciting. Um, shifting gears a little bit mm -hmm. again. Uh, I was, I was, <laughs> I was telling Grace before a recording of all mm -hmm. guests that I've had on, I have like the most questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dinosaurs will do that. I was curious if you have like three musical artists that have uh, inspired you or you draw inspiration from. Musical artists. Oh, I was not expecting that question. Um, hmm. Well, recently, over over quarantine, I have gotten very much into K-pop. That's been. Um, I would not argue that it's a inspiration in my life, especially since I just yeah. got into it. But it's a major source of joy for me. Um, it gets me moving because the dances are so fun to do, fun to learn. It, it really gets like it just gets me moving. Um, what else? Um, I kind of grow, I grew up on show tunes. So anything okay. from musicals are, have always been a really big part of my life. Um, Wicked specifically was definitely, was my favorite growing up and is probably still my favorite musical. Nice. Um, other than that, I have a very wide range of uh, music interests where I, I, I listen to basically anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those two are probably the things that are sticking out to me most right now. <laughs> nice. Do you have, are there like uh, three people or things that have influenced your outlook on life? Hmm. Well, honest, I mean, honestly, David Attenborough, I mentioned him many times, is a huge inspiration to me, as I'm sure he is to so many people just with the amazing conservation work that he does. Um, definitely an inspiration there. Um, I've had not a, not a lot, but really impactful and wonderful mentors in paleontology who have been champion, basically champions of me, um, you know, most notably Paul Serino, because he took a chance on me when I was 11 years old to work in his lab. Um, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and so, and he's, and ever since he's been such a huge supporter of just my general passion for it. Um, and like, and just a mentor for paleontology, just, you know, helping me figure out kind of what I want to pursue in general. He's been wonderful for that. Um, and, and within paleo, I've been able to work with some amazing women as well, who've been a huge inspiration like one of his his uh, former phd student has been um one of the most helpful people like just helping me navigate anything yeah. that i need where i'm like how do i do con how do what do i wear to a conference what do i uh how, how do i what's a cover letter those kind of things yeah um and uh yeah i, I think at least in the paleo community those are huge staples uh, my yeah. parents are my two biggest supporters for sure. And they've, right. you know, they, they never once, well, of course I was six, so maybe I don't remember, but they, they never once were like, oh, I don't know if dinosaurs is quite what you want to do. They, they yeah. fully supported this passion that's um, awesome. for as long as I can remember. And I think that, and that's been just, you know, I couldn't ask for better. Wow. Is there a, what are you curious about recently? Hmm. What am I curious about recently? I feel like most of my life revolves around birds. So I'm just, I'm curious and just finding where the sort of missing birds are that I haven't been able to see yet. I, I, I do love lists and I love listing the birds that I've seen. And, um, you know, for example, in, in Bristol, 
not in Bristol, in, in England, there's a woodpecker called it, uh, a, green, a green woodpecker. And it's not uncommon. Lots of people on Instagram that I follow take pictures of it. They've seen it. Mm. And I just cannot figure out how to see it. Um, so I am definitely curious to try to see, try to see one of those. But um, yeah, I think that's just anything within wildlife photography has been really has been piquing my curiosity, whether it's um, I recently got a new camera. So I've been trying to figure out all the odds and ends of how that works. Um, Cause okay. it's a, it's a bit of an upgrade from my 12 year old camera that I had before, which was taking amazing photos. It's everything that you see on my Instagram right now, but um, I, I was due for an upgrade. And now it's, I, like I said, I'm not great with technology. So it's a lot, it's very complicated to me. Wow. What's the, what's the process when you, uh, I think the, the term in film or whatever is dumping when you dump files, say from your camera to your computer or phone, is there a process you use? Mine's really simple. Um, cause I don't, yeah, I don't have anything too crazy. I really just put it right onto my computer. And if I don't have space, then I pop it onto, um, an external hard drive. I use Amazon photos actually to store mm -hmm. them for now. I had them all backed up on external hard drives, but Amazon photos, uh, if you have prime, which I do has unlimited storage and it, and it retains really? the quality. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Not for videos. Um, it, it has limited storage for videos, but for photos, it has, it retains the quality and is unlimited. So I have it there, but I also have them backed up elsewhere, but it's so easy if I want to just pull it up on my phone, you know, go into my Amazon photos app and be like, this is what I took. But, um, so that's been hugely, um, helpful in discovering that. <laughs> and, many, you know, uh, I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I, I don't know if that's the best way to be storing them. Cause I do have them in other capacities. I still have, I don't delete photos from memory cards. I just, they're, they're still there. Some of them I put onto external hard drives, but yeah, I, I have been loving having them on that cloud where I can just access them. How many cloud services do you, are you a part of? Um, really only that one. I actually don't use, okay. I, I have a, I have an Apple, I have an iPhone, but I don't use their cloud because it just gets, I would need so much storage. I imagine my monthly payments would end up being very, very expensive. Wow. Huh. But I'm always curious about that. That's what, that's what I'm curious about recently is file yeah. organization, cloud services and things like that. I should be more External. interested in that <laughs> because my, yeah. my organization is for, especially for photos, it works, but it is horrendous as in, I don't have any organization other than dumping. Um, yeah. yeah so exactly. I, you know, I, I am trying to find different methods. I recently got into um, Adobe Lightroom editing okay. uh and people are saying that using lightroom is actually a really good way to store fo photos there's easy ways to do that so that would be <laughs> an avenue uh the last question i have for you uh what are you excited for within the next two years oh, so much um africa for sure um i think that this upcoming trip is something that i'm just so excited for because I was actually supposed to go on this expedition back in 2020 and then of course um yeah we had a little issue but um 
it's so this is that trip, which has been a long time coming. And I wasn't sure if I'd be able to do it because uh, he originally rescheduled it for 2021. And then here I am, or well, there I was in school, so I couldn't do it then. And um, I was like, oh, well, I can't do it now. So it's my last chance ever. And then it was postponed again. And this hopefully is the is the time. So Africa is wow. what I'm most excited for. Yeah. But in the next two years, I will be, the fingers crossed, I will be in a PhD program somewhere. So that's just a whole nother chapter of my life that I'm so excited to embark on. Wow. That is exciting. And yeah. uh Thanks for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This it. has been yeah. this has been so fun. I love love talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Grace on Instagram at gkb underscore wildlife. Take the time to notice the wildlife around you, wherever you may be. There's going to be animals, and think about our connection with them and how we we coexist in this. Uh, this environment. It's really cool. Take the time, be present, and explore your curiosity.